Today's podcast was presented by the National Medical Student Education Committee in February of 2019. This podcast will provide an overview of this complex discipline and is designed to give medical students the ability to engage in thoughtful discourse with colleagues when caring with this patient population. It also provided specific insight into the ways urology is emerging as a leading specialist in this discipline, paving the way for the optimization of lifelong care, including before and after surgical reconstruction. My name is Dr. Seth Cohen. Uh, This is a webinar entitled Urological Care Within Transgender Medicine, Overview of Core Knowledge. This is a presentation of the American Urological Association's Medical Student Education Committee. So we're excited to be able to present this, this this innovative topic for all of you attending this evening, and we think you're going to learn a whole bunch. My name is Dr. Seth Cohen, so I work at an institution called City of Hope in Southern California. I've been on the moderator of a few of these, I've been the moderator of a few of these webinars now. It's a pleasure to be able to do this for you again. I'm going to introduce our panelists this evening before we get started, so we're very lucky to have four amazing panelists. One of our panelists is going to be Dr. Paulina Rayblatt. Dr. Rayblatt is the Chief of Service at the Department of Urology, Kaiser Permanente in Los Angeles. She's a graduate of the USC School of Medicine. She did her residency at USC and she did a fellowship at USC as well. Another panelist is Dr. Li Zhao. So Dr. Zhao is an assistant professor with the Department of Urology at the NYU Langone Medical Center. And he's also co-director of the Transgender Reconstructive Surgery Program there. Dr. Stanton Honig is a professor of clinical urology and the director of male reproductive health program and the male sexual medicine program, and also the director of the gender affirming surgery program at Yale. And Dr. Maurice Garcia is an associate clinical professor in residence at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, and he also directs the transgender surgery and health program at Cedar sinai So without further ado, we're going to get started with our first topic of terminology and nomenclature. This first question is going to Dr. Paulina Rayblatt. Dr. Rayblatt, what is gender identity? Can you please answer that question for us? Gender identity and gender expression. Dr. Rayblatt, are you here? We know you're on the call. Is 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 your audio working? I don't see her on the call. Hello, are you there? Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give Dr. Rayblatt a chance to catch up and get her audio functioning. We're going to move forward a little bit and come back to her questions because she's got an excellent topic. We want you to be able to hear what she has to say, but we're going to come back to her, okay? So we're going to actually now move forth to the next topic, okay, which is going to be presented by Dr. Zhao, and that topic is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health WPATH Guidelines. Dr. Zhao, are you on the call? Yes. I hope okay, everyone's great. here. Welcome. Thanks, thanks for being here. Oh, We're going to sure. get started with questions for you. So, Dr. Zhao, what is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH? Sure. Uh, so, it's a, a professional organization um, that uh, helps um, uh, create certain guidelines and care regarding, uh, based on the best available science and expert professional consensus regarding uh, transgender uh, health. It's made of okay. many and professionals, you know, in primary care and urology and and uh, mental health. 
Great. And, and is this, is this um, a body that's international from people all over the world, or is it localized to North America? Where does the world would presume it's everywhere? Uh, yes, it, it definitely is uh, a worldwide organization, uh, although there are subgroups such as USPATH, the United States Association, uh, and EPATH, which is the European, uh, that are uh, subgroups within WPATH, but it's definitely a worldwide organization. Okay, great. All right. We're going to keep moving here. So could you please answer for us, what would WPATH, what would the standards of care for transgender medicine look like? Uh, so the standard of care um, helps to provide clinical guidance uh, regarding transgender and gender non-confirming people with pathways to achieve comfort with their identity. Um, and it's based on uh, the best available science as well as expert you know, consensus. Um, provides guidance regarding uh, gynecologic, urologic care, hormonal, surgical management. Um, and most agencies, such as the Department of Health and Human Services, which encompasses Medicare, Medicaid, and U.S. commercial insurances, the State Department, they would defer to the standard of care from WPATH for guidance regarding treatment. Gotcha. Gotcha. I see. Are these updated on, uh, at certain time intervals, or is this um, just kind of consensus opinion every few years? Uh, it's definitely updated um, every few years. Uh, uh, currently, the uh, published is, um, version is the standard care version number seven, although we, we know the number eight is being outworked. And so, you know, every five years or so, new, as new science comes out, uh, there's new standard of care uh, documentation. I see. And this is this is a standard of care that would be really understood by, by urologists, endocrinologists, all different specialties, not just one particular discipline per se, correct? Correct. Gotcha. Okay. All right, we'll keep moving here. What can you explain this diagram a, a little bit for us, what this means? Sure. Uh so this diagram provides um a uh what's called kind of the pillar of treatment. You know, we we uh as urologists, you know, we're, we're really surgeons, you know, so we think about people who are having surgery and having things, but really there's many um, transgender persons who um, uh, may identify as transgender who don't want to go any therapy. There's some that will be on hormonal therapy. There's some who are interested in surgery but haven't undergone it. And then finally, just a very small um, number of patients who actually uh, undergo surgery. Sure. And, and I'm imagining the way the guidelines are applied is really going to depend upon where you fall on this on, the, on this on this pyramid of care. Absolutely. Uh, you know, as one uh, evolve um, towards uh, more you know invasive treatments such as surgery, uh, there is um, more and more evaluation to ensure that uh, you know patients are ready for the next uh, level of care. Got it. Got it. Okay. Great. So um, maybe you can answer for us, what evaluation is needed prior to hormonal therapy? Sure. Uh, so hormonal therapy, um, uh, prior to induction, uh, uh, induction of that, you know, generally the patient must have a persistent and well-documented gender dysphoria, uh, so, uh, as well as the capacity to make a fully informed decision, as well as the consent for treatment. Um, 
age of majority in a given country is part of the standard of care as well, although uh, there are certain discussions regarding specifically that regarding if the patient is younger. And if there are significant medical or mental health concerns, uh, they must be reasonably well controlled prior to hormonal therapy. I see. And, and is this something that usually urologists are involved with or endocrinologists or who ends up taking the helm on this care? You know, given that uh, gender dysphoria uh, is a diagnosis that makes one uncomfortable with their sense of uh, self mismatching with what the patient's presentation is, um, uh, this is typically not performed by urologists. It's usually a qualified mental health professional that does the evaluation. Um, and then, based on that particular evaluation, Oftentimes, an endocrinologist or a primary care physician uh, will uh, initiate the hormonal therapy. I see. I see. Okay. Very good. Seth, so can you is, hear me? Uh, yes, Dr. Rayblatt, we can. Oh, we can perfect. hear you. Welcome. Sorry. We're going to come back to your set of questions in just perfect. a moment, but please, if you have information, chime in. So, so Dr. Zhao, can you explain for us what this is talking about here with kind of referral for feminizing, masculinizing, masculinizing hormone therapy? Uh, yes, uh, you know, so this uh, essentially um, provides a. Uh, a better um, written version of what I've described, uh, you Got know, it. regarding, um, you know, which patients should undergo feminizing and masculinizing hormonal therapy. Again, it's really a mental health evaluation. Um, and upon that uh, referral from a qualified mental health professional, uh, then the patients can undergo uh, feminizing or masculinizing hormonal therapy. Got it. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Okay, so understanding the WPATH guidelines, we've discussed the endocrinological um, uh, evaluation. What about evaluation needed prior to surgery? What would you? How would we describe that? Sure. Um, so the mental health evaluation that is performed prior to hormonal therapy um, is one that uh, applies quite a bit uh, regarding uh, surgery. You know, I, I, we kind of think of surgery as one additional step uh, beyond hormonal therapy. And so um, uh, typically uh, the mental health professional has to establish their particular uh, relationship with the patient, you know, how the patient is uh, affected by the absence of surgery. And um, there are different degrees of evaluations that's needed depending on the specific kind of surgery. So for example, uh, for um, uh, uh, orchiectomy or for um, you know, complex genital surgery, we actually require two separate mental health uh, referrals uh, if, um, prior to any, uh, surgery. And, um, the patient should also be living for 12 months in the desired gender, gender role prior to complex reconstruction, such as phalloplasty or vaginoplasty. So this is, these are pretty strict criteria that we're talking about here. I mean, this is this is something that for people that are involved in, in comprehensive, um, you know, gender confirmation centers, this is they're going to be aware of this information. They're going to be familiar with it, and they're going to. Would you say this is pretty standard for people to follow as far as for inclusion criteria? Absolutely. You know, I think the goal of uh, anyone who um, performs treatment for gender dysphoria, um, we want to minimize the possibility for uh, a um, person to undergo 
a operative intervention that will produce regret. And so um, this isn't to serve as a gatekeeper uh, uh, way of preventing people from surgery. It's just to ensure that the patients um, are properly evaluated and that when they undergo surgery, they have the correct level of support. This, is, this has been an excellent discussion, Dr. Zhao. Thank you very much. We want you to continue to chime in as we talk to the rest of our colleagues here. We're going to go back in time a little bit to Dr. Rayblatt's presentation now that we have her uh, on the phone. So let's go. We're going to rewind here a little bit. Okay. Back to terminology nomenclature. We skipped this for a moment. Dr. Rayblatt, welcome. So what is gender identity and gender expression? Hi. Thank you for uh, for waiting for me while I clear off my uh, problem with the audio uh, setting. So for gender identity, it's a one's internal sense of one's gender and how it fits into societal categories, such as man, woman, or non-binary person. And a person's gender identity also may change over time. Gender expression is a presentation of, one ge of one's gender identity through the action and appearance. I see. Okay, so this really impacts how you interact with someone right off the bat when you're seeing a patient for the first time is understanding this, sounds like. That's correct. And gender expression is something that our brain perceives and also how we want to be perceived and how we want to uh, get our personality or gender expressed. It also gender okay. expression can be fluid and separate from assigned sex at birth and a given gender identity. Mm. And so what, what is biological sex and what is sexual orientation? Very good. So biological sex, or we try to really um, try to avoid using phrases like biological male or biological female because it might not be accurate accurate description of person's physical sex characteristics. But sex assigned at birth is a sex, male or female, assigned to a child at birth, most often based on the external anatomy. Sort of that part where the baby is born and you look and you say it's a boy, it's a girl. That uh, can be also referred as birth sex or natal sex or biological sex or just sex. Uh, for uh, sexual orientation is one sexual... Uh, identity in terms of gender of people who to whom one is at, attached or attracted. And it, uh, as we know, can be heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, and, and others. And it's a very distinct concept from gender. And if we move to our next slide, we uh, can see kind of the idea, if you would think about gender identity is sort of what we go to bed as, versus uh, sexual orientation as uh, who we go to bed with. And those things are on a continuum. This is not a binary system. It's more of a fluid system. And people can fall on a s several different spots along the axis. And those things, again, are not fixed in sort of time and place and can be fluid throughout uh, one's life. So, you know, as someone who's, who doesn't, I don't, I'm not in this specialty, obviously, this looks like a pretty complex diagram to kind of understand. When you're interacting with a patient for the first time when they walk into your office, how do you how do you address them? So I think the first time when you see a patient in the office, you don't really try to put them onto the gingerbread kind of uh, category. You're trying to be uh, kind and polite, and you start by uh, asking how the person or the patient would like to be addressed. And in reality, that interaction doesn't start with you in the clinic room. The patient interaction 
with your office or with the whole healthcare team starts at the check-in, right? The check-in, the nurse, the, uh, that's where the first communication and also that's the first impression that you make with the, with this patient. And that's uh, where we ask the patient how uh, they would like to be addressed and what their preferred pronouns. Also now with this a lot that- of... Go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead, please. Uh, a lot of our uh, hospitals have EMRs in place, and most medical students probably work in the places where EMR has an ability to separate the biological or assigned sex at birth and the preferred uh, gender and preferred pronoun. And those are important to keep in mind as you open the chart before you go see a patient. Gotcha. And I want to open this up for the rest of our panelists. Is there, you know, um, Dr. Garcia, when a patient walks into your office for the first time, is there any phrases or welcoming that you you usually use when you meet them for the first time to address them? Yeah, I, I think as Dr. Rayblad nicely put it, I, I think we just have to, to, to be welcoming in a way that doesn't feel stilted or awkward. And, um, you know, I uh, just ask, as Dr. Rayblad said, I just ask patients, you know, what name they prefer. Because often, as we all know, the electronic medical record doesn't necessarily have their 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 current name or preferred name, and um, and then I ask, you know, what, what pronouns they prefer, uh, and I I go out of my way to input that into my notes so that any colleagues, such as anesthesia or other specialists at Cedar at my institution, sort of know about this person and are less likely to misgender them. Got it. And Dr. Zhao, Dr. Honig, any, anything to add to that? Any Anything you use when you're addressing patients for the first time when they walk into your office? <clears throat> no, I just try to, as Dr. Rayblatt and uh, Dr. Garcia have said, just show them the respect that they deserve. You know, we've discussed before issues where, you know, a staff member makes a mistake or uh, is not clear as to how they want to address a person. You know, the best thing to do is just to say, hey, I'm sorry. You know, I, I may not have uh, addressed you appropriately, how do we move forward in a positive way? And just try to be as matter of fact as possible just to treat them like any other patient, which Got is it. what the, what Got they it. really want, what, what patients really want. Sure, sure, yeah. certainly. Uh, I, mean, I, I think just uh, to try to, you know, Inner with with kindness and understanding, and say that you know, uh, you know, because many many patients have been had other kinds of you know misgendering you know, things episodes before, and so I think if you say that you know we're we're on the side where we just try to um, get things right for our overall health system, um, that that's usually a very good start. Excellent. Okay, we're going to keep moving here with Dr. Rayblatt. So Dr. Rayblatt, we kind of just said this. So maybe we're going to skip it, but how do you address the patient or anyone if you're not sure? Let's say you don't know. Let's say the person walks in and you're like, honestly, I don't know. I mean, what's, what's the sentence that you think would, would come out of your mouth? Is there anything to add to what we just said or should we keep moving? I think we can keep moving. But in general, I actually had a patient today who had a listed name and preferred name in a way that I couldn't, um, I really couldn't figure out. So I, um, I walked in and I said, I'm Dr. Rayblatt what would you like to be addressed as today and what can I help you with? And then we went from there. But if you make a mistake and sometimes even throughout the conversation, our brain is pre-programmed to use the pronouns that somewhat match the person appearance. If you make a mistake, you apologize and you move along and you don't say things like, I'm so sorry and kind of don't focus on yourself, like how awful you feel about making a mistake. It's about the patient. You apologize and you, uh, and you move on. 
forward with your medical encounter. Great tips. Great tips for our medical students. Okay. Now we're, we've kind of you've just you're you just thinking ahead. So what do we do if we misgendered someone in a conversation? I, I think you've addressed that as well. Yes. Anything we would add? Uh, another uh, probably a good tip if you know that you have patients and you're especially in a clinic where your clinic doesn't see a lot of transgender patients. It's nice sure. to preempt uh, your front uh, staff and the nursing staff saying we have few patients. You point them out on the schedule and uh, be particularly sensitive about uh, this patient addressing them and uh, using the genders. Excellent. For now. Well, I think this is really this is a really helpful slide here that I want to give you a chance to explain about improving our culture and care. And very specifically, obviously, we've identified terms that are really not good terms to use. Um, is there anything you would explain about this or add to this this slide here? I think this slide is self-explanatory, and these are the terms we want to avoid. And it's important, again, to educate not just ourselves, but people we work with, because medical interaction is everywhere. You go to x-ray, you go to lab, uh, to anesthesia, pre-op, and so forth. So these are important things to know not to use. I really, uh, specifically chromosomal male and female uh seems to be very offensive as well as a normal male and female because that by definition makes transgender being abnormal. Things like he, she, or she male are uh, really outdated. Uh, things that uh, seem to really uh, stick is a sex reassignment surgery. And uh, when my colleagues use it, I just politely say, oh, you mean gender affirmation? Because they don't mean to use offensive terms. It's just also terminology changes so fast that it's hard to uh, stay on top of all the updated terminology. Yeah, and I think that's real. That's super important because you know you guys are are, are spe your specialists. You work with this, but you know even in the general urology community, I mean, you know, reassignment is a term that I've heard in conversations within the last few months. You know, and obviously that's not the right term to use. You know, and and so we really have to educate ourselves about how to be appropriate and 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 interact and converse correctly with with our patients. Okay, right. Let me keep moving. Okay. Um, there's you know some. You know, this is a little more text on the slide. Um, once again, it's, it's kind of talking about pronouns and dead names. Maybe you want to explain about that a little bit? I will explain it is? a little bit. I got this information from one of my transgender patients, and uh, she always say transgender is not an adjective. I mean, it's an adjective. It's not a noun. So she would refer to herself that I'm not a uh, I'm a transgender woman. I'm not a transgendered woman or I'm not transgender. I'm not a transgender. So I'm a transgender woman. That's how she wants to be known uh, in the world. She doesn't like in a non-medical conversation when people uh, just have a social interaction with her to be asked about dead name or sort of what's your original name or what's your real name uh, or questions about the uh, status of the gen genitalia or planning for surgery. And I think this is uh, also applicable to medical encounters that are not related to transgender care per se or to any kind of a, uh, either gender affirmation surgery top, bottom, or any kind of surgical encounter. So if somebody comes in for pneumonia treatment, you probably don't want to dwell on these uh, bullet points that we've outlined. Got it. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Well, that was that was a really excellent introduction to terminology and, and definition. So thank you very much for helping us with that, Dr. Lee Please Please chime in as we continue. We're going to keep going here now. We've obviously talked to Dr. Zhao about WPATH, so we're going to keep moving on to our next category with Dr. Honig. So, Dr. Honig, we're going to talk about generalized care for the transgender patient. So, let's start with general medical care. What would 
general medical care look for look like for a transgender patient? So overall, as urologists, we don't overall do kind of generalized medical care, but uh, as a general point, I think it's it's important that we stress general medical care. So whether it is gender specific, meaning relating to organs that they have or not, or just overall, it's important that we make sure that our patients are lined up with primary care doctors, endocrinologists that are familiar with, you know, transgender care. Uh, One of the, one of the the phrases that has been coined uh, in terms of general medical care is to know what organs you have. So for instance, a trans uh, gender female, uh, before they have any type of gender affirming surgery, will have testes, they'll have a prostate. And it's important to, for them to know that they still have to do a self-examination of their testicles. Testicular cancer is the most common cancer in um, males who have testicles. So a transgendered female will still have testicles. So it's important them to, for them to know that they have um, that they have to do this examination um, before gender affirmation surgery. All trans females will have prostates, and after surgery they still will have prostate. So it's important for them to be screened similar to uh, the cis males uh, for PSA screening, prostate uh, exam, if appropriate, um, transvaginally or otherwise, so they understand uh, that all these organs are are important. Uh, I might add that many uh, trans females are not comfortable with their testes. They, they may tuck them and otherwise, and therefore it's important for us to remind them uh, that they have these organs. Um, for trans uh, males, they will also have female organs. So ovaries, cervix, uterus, breast, things like that. So they also have to undergo the appropriate uh, screening tests um, for, for the organs that they have. And after they undergo gender affirmation surgery, they may still have breast tissue present. So, uh, and they may, they may, trans males may still have some internal female organs. So it's important for them to understand this and uh, identify this, uh, screening for cervical cancer, things like that. Um, so those are the kind of important factors. Uh, other things that are important in this particular, if you go back, to the previous slide, just general care. Um, For instance, trans uh, females who have been on um, estrogen for a long time, there's been a recent JAMA paper suggesting that there's a higher incidence of pulmonary embolus, uh, deep vein thrombosis, things like that. Maybe there's a slightly higher incidence of cardiovascular disease. So this is something that we have to make our patients aware of. And even though we're not the primary care doctors, a lot of times we do follow these patients long-term. So it's important for us to follow the literature and pass this on to to our our, our patients. This is is really excellent info. It's super important for urologists to be a, a, a reminder for them. What about reproductive health and fertility for a transgender patient? How, 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 do they, how do they engage with that? And this is very important because um, this particular population, fortunately or unfortunately, does have a higher incidence of HIV disease, 
has a higher incidence of substance abuse, drug disease. So they're a high risk population um, for sexually transmitted diseases. So it's important that we teach our patients uh, if they're having um, sexual encounters to use the appropriate um, safe sex methods. If they're having um, vaginal penetration with a phallus to use condoms and vice versa um, for uh, patients who have um, who are having anal intercourse to use the appropriate precautions to prevent sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, trans men who are on um, testosterone, if they're not taking it regularly, can actually have breakthrough bleeding. And if they're having a vaginal penetration, they can actually get pregnant. So uh, we have to make them aware that um, non-compliance with testosterone could put them at risk for pregnancy. And it's not the type of thing that they will necessarily think, to think of, but it is the type of thing that um, can come up and can potentially be an issue. Um, sure. Lastly, on this topic, one of the things that um, I'm very interested in is fertility preservation. And um, we try to address uh, the issue of preserving your gametes, uh, usually before they start estrogen uh, therapy. So if you go to the next slide, um, this is an algorithm for, and this is the, for, for instance, male to female uh, trans patients who are transitioning. Uh, the ideal way for patients to freeze uh, sperm, for instance, would be to collect sperm before they're started on estrogen therapy. It's interesting that, as it turns out, only about 10% of adolescents are actually interested in freezing sperm. And we actually pulled some of our patients over the last three years, and it turns out only about 10%, even that come to our clinics who have already been on hormone therapy, who have transition socially, et cetera, only about 10% are interested in fertility preservation. So there's a kind of an algorithm that we go through. So if we try to get either the endocrinologist to have them consider freezing sperm before they start estrogen therapy and a the sperm is present, they can preserve it and then they can move, move on to hormone transition. If they're unable to ejaculate or they're already on estrogen, either we can check their ejaculate on the estrogen or we can stop their estrogen and they can see if they can ejaculate. But most trans women who have, are on estrogen typically don't want to go off that to preserve sperm. Um, at that point, if patients are considering undergoing um, gender uh, affirming surgery, we can actually at the time of removing their male gametes, we can actually go in and retrieve sperm from the testicle. It turns out that in about a quarter of patients, if you look at the, the, uh, the testicles, they'll actually have sperm present. It's not clear why some do and some don't. Maybe they're not on, maybe they haven't been completely compliant with their estrogen or their uh, anti um, the spironolactone, but about 25% will actually have sperm uh, at the time of the testicle removal. So we can actually retrieve sperm at the time of gender affirming surgery if patients um, are still interested in this particular option. And it's something that we do in male reproduction on a regular basis for other conditions. Sure. Well, it's, I mean, it, I mean, 
this is obviously super important for the care of transgender patients to be aware of this and to have urologists involved is it's it's extraordinarily necessary um, to facilitate that care. Let's move on to the mental health care uh, aspect of transgender uh, patient care. So, what what can you tell us about that? Well, I think the important part from our standpoint and a urologist u- urologist standpoint is just to try to integrate uh, the mental health professionals that work with our patients. So uh, we try as best as possible to get our patients to be seen uh, preoperatively, perioperatively, and really in the, in the early postoperative period, because they can undergo a, you know, a sense of some level of depression in the postoperative period. So um, we try to, as much, much as possible, we have a social worker that works with our team who will try to coordinate uh, the care with uh, the patient's mental health professionals to get them back into a regular routine. So uh, th- their transition either with hormones or surgically will be uh, be as easy as possible for them. I'd like to add something. Um, we've established also the protocol that as we plan for the surgery uh, for, for our patients, we make sure that upon discharge, everybody has an appointment with their home therapist within a week after discharge. So we have a social worker, just as Dr. Honing mentioned, to see patients every day in the hospital. And then within a week, they will be able to reconnect with their original therapist. So that provides the continuity and the stability on, on the mental uh, sort of mental health side. And for medical students, I would say if you're on the team that has uh, on the gender affirmation surgery team, and if you have time, just stop by and talk to patients. It is a pretty boring hospital stay, I would say, in the surgery, and there's a lot of downtime, and any company is usually welcome. Great point. Excellent point. Okay. Agree. Agreed? Agreed from the others? Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to sexuality metrics and exploring sexuality within transgender care. What can we, what can we say about this, Dr. Honig? Well, this is this is a very complicated issue because um, you know, as a as as a as a urologist that focuses on sexual medicine, we 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 know that some patients are more sexual than other, whether they're cis or trans, and we we kind of emphasize the importance of patients to explore their sexuality. Number one, that it's important. Number two, that it's okay, whether you're a cis or trans, and um, for the for the transgender patients, it's very complicated because number one, uh, some of them are very comfortable with their body and their organs and their sexuality, but others are very uncomfortable um, with their sexual organs. I'm, I'm going to read something from uh, I think it's from uh, the Principles of Transgender Medicine and Surgeon says, "I'm being touched in one spot and it feels pleasant." But on the other hand, I do not want it to feel pleasant because I associate that with an organ I didn't really want to have. So I just found that to be a very interesting comment where there's this dichotomy of pleasurable sexual experience with an organ that they are not comfortable with. So um, I know myself, Dr. Garcia, and I have spoken about this in detail, that it's important that we have patients explore their sexuality before they undergo surgery. And then 
in the early post-op period for them to start to explore their bodies as well, because there's a major change. You're changing a, a, a penis into a clitoris. Uh, you're changing uh, hormonally from, uh, from a testosterone to estrogen. You have changes in libido. You have, um, when you lose your test, when you have the testicles removed, the, the, you know, and you lower your estrogen levels, there are changes in your body as well. Patients may experience orgasms in different ways. And, you know, it's interesting, about 80% of patients will have orgasms with clitoral stimulation in the post-operative period. Um, they also describe a high satisfaction rate with the procedure, which may or may not be related to things like orgasm, et cetera, may just be more related to intimacy. So I think it's a very complicated uh, topic. We're, we're trying now to sort out what metrics to look at for both trans men and trans women. Um, so it's something that I, and I know all the panelists, uh, it's important to us to integrate into our care of the patients. Wonderful discussion. Thank you very much. Really, very, very much, John. Really, very, very meaningful quote as well. Uh, we're going to move on to overview of gender-affirming general surgery with Dr. Garcia, who's going to provide us an insight into the urological surgery that goes on for patients. So, Dr. Garcia, what are some common feminizing surgeries? Sure. Thanks, Seth. Um, so, some common uh, feminizing surgeries, uh, um, they're written below in black. But first, I think it's important for everyone to understand that two key parts of genital surgery for patients is really first eliminating the male or male-appearing anatomy, and then secondly, replacing that with female-appearing and functioning genital anatomy, uh, genitals. Um, and I think it's important to, to bear those two in mind. As Dr. Honig was saying, a big part of the unpleasantness of dysphoria is having to use your genitals that you don't really have a good relationship with or being reminded about your your body not matching what it should match uh, by, you know, when, when people look at their genitals on a daily basis and so forth. So uh, both are important. Um, I think feminizing surgery, so bilateral orchiectomy is, I think, a very, very important one. Uh, and it can be offered as a standalone surgery. It's done transcrotally, I think is a, probably the best way to do it, not, not uh, by inguinal approach. Um, and, um, and that's done as a standalone procedure or at the time of vaginoplasty. And then I think vaginoplasty, I always present this to patients as follows. I say that, um, you know, vaginoplasty is creation of a vagina. There's a vagina. There's only one type of vagina. It's what you look at and see and functions as a vagina. Uh, but, you know, we, there's two variants, one with a canal, which is, can be called shallow depth or zero depth or vaginoplasty without canal. And then there's vaginoplasty with creation of a canal, which, you know, you can call it a full depth vaginoplasty sort of among surgeons, but it's vaginoplasty. Um, and uh, there are three techniques for that, uh, for vaginoplasty with a canal. There's penile inversion, which is the simplest and probably the safest. There's penile inversion with scrotal skin uh, or a pedicle flap. Um, and then there's colon vaginoplasty. Got it. Okay. And, you know, uh, maybe before we move forward, it's, it's a good time now to, to, to stop and say, you know, who, who's doing these surgeries? And is, is there, is there a very, is it urological surgeons? Is, is it general surgeons? Who's participating in, you know, for the most part, is it variable? 
Yeah, I, I don't. I think it matters less, uh, Seth, as to who does it, meaning what specialty, whether it's urologists or plastic surgeons or both. I, I think more commonly, you know, urologists and plastic surgeons, you know, reconstructive surgery is sort of the the home domain to those two specialties of all the surgical specialties. Um, um, you know, or reconstruction in that part of the body, uh, roughly. Um, I will say that I think, you know, urologists, you know, all of this anatomy, either that we deconstruct and or construct is ultimately urologic anatomy. So I think, you know, those of us in urology are, have a natural sort of background and, you know, uh, you know, sort of, you know, a little bit more expertise, you know, the common complications are urinary function and sexual function with any of these surgeries. And and those are two natural domains of urologists. So I think we'll find that those are the two specialties that most commonly do this, although there are some gynecologists out there that, that do it. Uh, uh, I think it's a much smaller group and so forth. And generals, you know, uh, maybe some general surgeons, but less commonly. Gotcha. Okay, let's, let's move on to what are some common masculinizing surgery options. Sure. Let's, okay, good. Um, so w- once again, um, I think it's important to, just like for the, the women, for, for men, it's really two things we're accomplishing with these surgeries. We're eliminating the, the anatomy that doesn't belong there, female-appearing anatomy, and uh, and then creating male-appearing and male-functioning uh, genitals. There's a missing S there. Um, um, and, you know, I, I think we can easily say that for masculinizing surgeries, that, that you know, it's, it's a characteristic is that there are many surgeries uh, that all can be wrapped together, and that there are many, many more options as opposed to feminizing surgery. So metoidioplasty, uh, in terms of making it's easiest to understand this by sort of, you know, viewing this around the construction of a penis. And the two options, uh, the general options are metoidioplasty, which is creating a small micro penis using the person's native anatomy. So it's really their clitoris. I, you know, we try to, as Dr. Rayblatt nicely pointed out, we want to use gender affirming terminology. So I just call it their micro penis and they get it. Uh, but we make a small penis using the small penis they already have. Um, and that can be done with or without urethral lengthening. Uh, we remove the labia minora and kind of free it up. It's like a bit of a cordy, so we make it a little bit longer, not much. And then we can make it with or without a urethra. And that surgery can be combined, as the other surgeries can, with uh, hysterectomy, single uh, ovary sparing or bilateral, uh, sorry, sing- single ovary removal or bilateral ophorectomy. Um, uh, there's a vagina sparing uh, or um, uh, or with vaginectomy. So these are options men can choose from. I had a picture of a metoidioplasty that had a, wanted to, the guy wanted to preserve his vaginal canal. Um, that's not shown now, but uh, that was up there before. Uh, there's complex scrotoplasty. So we take the labia majora and make a nice scrotum for them. And then uh, later we can insert testicular prostheses. With metoidioplasty, there, there aren't you know, male erectile devices for for that anatomy, unfortunately. And then the other option is creating a full-size penis. And we call that, generally, we call that phalloplasty. And that can be with or without urethral lengthening as well. And I think that generally breaks down to three general options. There's using the arm, a radial artery forearm flap, which that's a free flap. Uh, It's based on the radial artery. 
um, and we make the, the, the penis and the urethra out of these single flaps. Uh, the second option is an anterior lateral thigh flap, uh, which can be done as a free or a pedicle flap. Um, um, and then lastly, there's using tummy skin, whether it's a super midline suprapubic flap uh, or uh, sort of a, a lateral groin flap. And those are pedicle flaps. Uh, the suprapubic and groin flaps don't typically have sensation, so we can't make a urethra from those same flaps, although those patients can subsequently undergo radial artery urethroplasty, where we take a much smaller portion of the arm to make a, a, a neo-urethra and then put that in to the pubic, uh, suprapubic uh, phallus once it's healed. And those surgeries um, can also be combined with hysterectomy, you know, single or bilateral ovary removing surgery, vaginectomy, uh, scrotoplasty, and then very importantly, glansplasty. And if you look on the right, I, we picked a picture of the same penis uh, by the telltale uh, uh, snake there. The middle panel has the penis uh, after first stage surgery, where we just make the penis in the urethra without a glans. And then the second one has the glansplasty and the scrotoplasty done. And I should add that different surgeons do this in some do it in two stages, some do it in one stage. I happen to do it in two stages, um, but there's variability there and there's you know good arguments for both. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is just superb reconstruction. I mean, really. Um, the We're gonna keep moving here. This is just a really nice diagram of some of the flaps you've talked about briefly. Anything to touch here on, 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 these, on these illustrations? Yeah, the, the vaginoplasty picture uh, doesn't, you know, uh, it, it sort of gives the general idea of it. I was we're trying to focus on the skin that's used. And then, uh, you know, the others, I think, are self-explanatory. Uh, I would encourage the the, the, med the students in attendance tonight to, to look at the AUA updates. These diagrams are all from that, and uh, they're discussed nicely in there. The last one is an inflatable penile prosthesis. We most uh, Many surgeons do a single cylinder. I prefer inflatable over malleable, and uh, and then we have to wrap it in dac Dacron or some material to anchor the prosthesis to the body so that it doesn't just sort of float around and erode out. Uh, but again, all this is discussed nicely in the AUA updates. Great. Okay. Can you describe some general complication profiles of the domains of genital uh, uh, gender-affirming surgery? Sure. So I, I think that for, for feminizing surgery, which is the box on the left, I, I think it's fairly reasonable to say that the major complication rate is quite low. Uh, the most dreaded and feared complication is a rectal injury. Um, you know, from the literature, it's you know, anywhere from 2 or 1% to 5%. Uh, you know, it, it happens uh, apparently, and, you know, we just, people deal with it. You know, we deal with it, fix it, and move on. But I think the incidence is overall quite low. There's urethral injury, which I think is quite low. Um, you know, what can happen maybe more commonly, I don't think we have solid numbers on this, but sometimes people can lose part of their vaginal depth. So whatever flaps were used in there, whether they were grafts or part of the flap, cannot survive. Um, you know, I, I think these are fairly uncommon. Uh, it's fair to say that. Um, there are minor complications, but I think it's better to not call them complications. They're just part of surgery. Um, sure. You know, many patients get granulation tissue down there, and we deal with right. it fine, and it goes away. There's dehiscence, sprayed urinary stream. Uh, these are less common, or these are more common, but they're, deal you, you know, easily dealable uh, with. And, and then for masculinizing surgery, that's where we see more complications. Typically, it's the urinary tract, um, urethral strictures, mm -hmm. fistulas. And then um, 
penile prosthetics, I think, in this population can be associated with a lot of uh, complications. I think it's technique-driven. Um, but it's important to remember the item in yellow that overall, even for patients that have suffered many compli horrible complications, if you ask them, do you regret having started to transition with surgery, it's extremely rare, in my experience, for people to say they regret having tried to have surgery. Yes, people regret complications, but they don't regret doing something that they just feel they very naturally had to do. So that's important. Sure, sure. And so I'd like to add something oh, yeah, uh, really quick sure. to the prior slide. If yep. uh, on a feminizing genital surgery, if you happen to see a patient in clinic, and we see a lot of patients that are long distance, it's a lot more uh, common now to be able to have your uh, gender-affirming surgery sort of within, let's say, 2,200 mile radius. But historically, patients would have to travel a lot or fly and uh, then get their post-op care elsewhere. It's a little bit better now, but still there's a lot of long-distance surgery. Therefore, there are a fair number of patients showing up in the emergency rooms and urgent cares with um, sort of a relatively fresh post-op uh, issues and concerns. So if you ever see a, a post-vaginoplasty patient who is uh, uh, normal depth, not shallow depth, regardless of what the issue is, the main part to tell the patient is to continue dilating. That part is important to maintain the vaginal canal, and people tend to stop dilating if something else happens, and that's how a lot of vaginal canals uh, get lost, uh, on, on this, especially on the long-distance surgery. So sort of if you're a medical student on the emergency or urgent care or primary care, family medicine, rural medicine rotation, and you see one of these patients, to never stop dilating. That's Excellent a good point. Yeah, yeah, really, really good point. Okay, and so Dr. Garcia, the importance of understanding and managing patient expectations. I think we'll finish out with this. And we we have some, we have actually a whole bunch of really great participatory questions here from our audience that I want to get to with some of them anyway. So we'll, we'll have you finish with this. Excellent. I'll keep this quick. So I, I think, as we all know, in medicine, a lot of medicine, a majority of medicine, is just managing patients and expectations. Um, and I think that's in order to be successful and give good care, we have to know how to do that well. Um, you know, this is a type of a field of surgery that has very significant impact on patients' satisfaction and their quality of life, as, as my colleagues have all pointed out in their presentations. Um, I, I think it's important to, you know, have a very thorough and frank discussion of risks, you know, things that may or may not happen less or more often to me. I just tell them and I say, you know, you may be my first or you may, this still may happen to you. Uh, and I, you know, it's important to tell people in the best of hands, things can happen and we have to plan for it, but I am committed to managing it with you and for, for you and with you and, you know, it, keeping you in the loop about plans and, uh, and you know, it, it's a partnership. Um, I think it's very effective in, in the long run to engage patients in pre-surgery preparation. So weight loss, permanent hair removal, these are things that drive the quality of the outcome. And, and I think they should, we should remain firm on these things. And I think by engaging people, I think it's empowering too. Uh, you know, even though it's a pain to have to lose weight or get all this laser hair removal and so forth. And then I think, um, lastly, uh, very close, detailed post-op instructions. People get very, this is a population that, you know, you don't want to generalize about anybody or any population, but in my experience, many of these folks are very anxious. It's all new territory for them. They've waited their whole lives, and there's a lot of natural anxiety. 
they come by it honestly. And I think the more we can give them to, to decrease their anxiety with information, what to expect, timelines, how often they should be dilating for how long, details that you and I might think are self-explanatory. I think the more we can give them, the better uh, things work. On the right, there, you, you see an, a, a little educational aid that I came up with. Um, and it's basically, it's a panel of, you know, plaster casts of cisgendered vaginas. It's by a wonderful artist named Jamie McCartney. There's like 400 of them. But when I show this to patients and I make three important points, sometimes it's useful to make heavy hitting points with something simple. So what, number one, looking at this, we can show patients that number one, all vaginas, vaginas are different. Every single vagina on there looks is noticeably different. So there's no gold standard, uh, which means that there's a wide spectrum of normal. There, I tell them, you're going to have the vagina that Mother Nature meant for you because it's using your own body. Um, and you know, the second, the second thing this shows is that there's limited tissue available. Well, this doesn't show that. I, I explained that there's limited tissue available for reconstruction. So you know your your labia are going to be perhaps less prominent that, than many women's, but they're still on the spectrum of normal. Many of the vaginas here have small sort of flatter labia, and and that's what we see in a lot of vaginoplasty. It's not totally flat, but you know not you know elephant ear labia, uh, and that's the way it is. Um, and then lastly, vaginal. This I think is the most important to me is vaginal depth is is not visible. You can't look at any of these vaginas and say if they have a canal or how deep it is. Therefore, you know, having a canal or not having a canal doesn't, or not having a canal doesn't make a, someone less of a woman. And I think these patients can, can be a little bit sensitive to that because, you know, again, I, my feeling, my sense from them is that they want, most want is to be normal. Um, and, and I think we need to normalize these surgeries for people and help them. And I think it's fair to say that you can't tell how deep any of these are. So, so depth doesn't, doesn't define a vagina. A vagina is what you see and that it function like a vagina with respect to a clitoris and your, how do you urinate from it and its overall look. And, and I think these are points that uh, can be easily made with this little panel. Sure. Yeah, these are excellent points. Thank you very much. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to go to some questions now um, from, the, uh, you know, from, our, from our attendees, and there's a lot of them, so I apologize. We're not going to be able to answer all or get all the questions answered, but we're going to try to get to a number of them. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll ask the question, and I'll direct it to a panelist, and then we'll open it up a little bit more to some panelists, okay? So, so this comes from uh, someone who's asking, it sure seems like most gender-affirming surgeries are done by plastic surgeons. Do you think urology's role is going to start to be performing more of these gender-affirming surgeries or to manage urological issues in trans patients? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send this over to, to Dr. Zhao for your input. What would you say about this, Dr. Zhao? To the medical students, it seems, geez, it really seems like plastic surgeons are owning this. Is urology, is urology really a big part of it? You know, I, I really don't think it's, you know, one field owning something or not. You know, uh, certainly at my center, uh, it's a uh, collaborative effort uh, with plastic surgery and urology. I mean, we, we also have, you know, gynecologists in our team. It's truly a multidisciplinary effort um, uh, to be able to render the best care to the patients. Gotcha. Gotcha. And would anyone I also like want to add, I also want to add, that it's it's not it's not just collaborative. The complications also go both ways. And as Dr. Garcia pointed out, the complications of phalloplasties are predominantly urological, and they um, and as as much as it appears that plastic surgeons are um, 
owning it, they're not. Uh, if you if you talk to almost every plastic surgeon out there who is performing the surgery, he or she has a collaborator uh, in in the urology field. It's just how the structures are built and how the teams are built. We have a team that's more of a uh, of a fifty fifty team, but every um, Every transgender surgery center has a little bit of a different setup. It's a huge urological component, and it's up to you somewhat to decide uh, who, who is a driving force at any given setting. Sure. So this the, question the, is actually – I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes. I, this is Maurice. I was just going to add, I, I agree with my colleagues completely. I, I think we should also remember that for the medical students that, you know, urologists, you know, our relationships with patients are a little bit different in that we talk about – function. And we're a little bit more, I don't want to say that plastic surgeons are focused less on interpersonal discussions, but but we, we tend to talk about sort of sensitive, we're good at talking about sensitive issues with patients. And, and you know, sexual function and urinary function, they're very intensely personal and sensitive issues. And I think that urologists are, are have a natural, it's part of our wheelhouse. House. We talk about cancer with patients. We talk about talk about sexual dysfunction with patients. All sorts of things, and, and with kids. And I think it's, I, you know, I'm I'm always impressed at my colleagues how, you know, people have a very thoughtful approach to it. And I think it's one of the things we bring to this field. It's not just sure. technical. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Is that it? The this yeah. one this question is actually directed um, to Dr. Rayblatt specifically about your comment about dilating. And so we have a, a medical student asking, you know, what, what do you mean by dilating? Can you explain that a little bit more? And, and for the long-distance patients, is it becoming more commonplace now to manage these patients with Skype and FaceTime and coordinating with general practitioners locally? Oh, excellent question. There are two uh, separate questions. I'll take the second one. It's simpler. The simple answer is yes. We do a lot of video visits. Uh, for our patients, uh, specifically sort of uh, checks through, uh, getting ready for surgery and after they get out of the acute uh, part of the surgery, after three to six months post-op, we do a lot of video visits and that's probably becoming more and more prominent. So back to dilating, as Dr. Garcia was describing kind of what the feminizing surgery is, uh, the space is being made in a sort of a hyper, uh, it, it's a potential space. If you think uh, through your netter pictures, the space between the prostate and the rectum is the space where the neovagina will lie. And this is not a real space, uh, but it's a potential space that we create during uh, vaginoplasty surgery. As we create the space and dilate it, then that space gets lined by either just penile skin, combination of penile scrotal skin, or it's lined with a with a piece of the intestine. If you use the skin, penile, or combination of penile scrotal skin and just leave it there, sort of be, the body tends to kind of collapse that area and the vaginal depth and the whole vaginal vault will be lost. So the protocol for all vaginoplasties is to start dilating and there are special dilators that are made specifically for post-vaginoplasties uh, that patients start dilating about five to seven days after surgery and we all have a little bit different protocols. But conceptually, they start dilating is something that's about maybe an inch across uh, in diameter and about, uh, I would say, 10 to 12 inches long. And we teach the patients how to dilate right after that week after surgery. And they start with frequent dilations about four times a day. That slowly becomes a once-a-day dilation. And the size of dilators goes up as time progresses. 
once sort of everything is said and done and healed about a year after surgery, we tell patients to continue dilating about once a day. Some, patients, some uh, surgeons say you can go down to once a week or stop dilating. In acute postoperative period, in the first six months, especially if there are some complications, dilation is a key part to maintaining the vaginal vault. Gotcha. Does that answer Thanks. this personal question? Do we have a I, I think way it, to get I feedback? I think it very comprehensively. Yeah, I think it comprehensively does. We're gonna we're gonna go another fifteen minutes here because there are just so many questions people are putting out there. We want to try to get to them, so we're gonna we're gonna go to nine fifteen EST, six fifteen PST. Um, so this is gonna this question is for Dr. Honig. Okay, this is actually very this is a very interesting question. It goes back to just kind of talking, interacting with with those we're providing care for, and this person would like to know. What, what the panelists think about not calling people with gender dysphoria as quote-unquote patients since they are not sick, should we really change the way we're approaching them and treat them more so as individuals? And so, Dr. Honig, how would you respond to that statement? Um, well, I mean, everyone who comes in, uh, I think you have to really consider a patient. I mean, if, if someone's coming in for some kind of reconstructive procedure, I think that they're all our patients. Um, I think the real question is, how do you describe their condition? And, you know, I think that we, we try as best to categorize it not as being quote unquote abnormal. We try to describe it as just a variant of normal. So, I think it's it's a matter of how you present yourself to the patient, how you talk to a patient. And I think that as long as we treat it as, as a transition, which it is, whether it's hormonal, surgical, or otherwise, um, I don't really think of it as a, I think of it as a, I don't know what the appropriate term is, um, but for instance, we, we had a protocol collecting tissue from, from our cancer patients, and, and it was linked under malignant and benign disease. And to collect tissue, you know, I felt it wasn't really appropriate to put it under even benign disease. It's not a disease. It's, it's, a, it's a condition, et cetera. So we, 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 had to, we got a different IRB that really was addressing just uh, – a different type of protocol. So I think you just have to be sensitive to how you address it and uh, overall just show respect to the patient. Sure. But sure, I no, think this medical point. student yeah. or this person has a good point. Uh, when people go see their mental health therapist, they're called clients, they're not called patients. Probably in surgical practice, it's hard to justify not calling people, patients, I mean, what else would we call them? Visitors. But I think the point is very important. We also, I had an idea when we were done with surgery, do I remove gender dysphoria from the diagnosis list, right? If we've, if the person transitioned and got all the surgeries the person wanted, should we remove the gender dysphoria because we, in theory, cure the gender dysphoria? And that is, I think we just don't know the right answers for this yet. Yeah, sure, sure. This is Maurice. I, I agree uh, with those points. And I, I would go further and say, you know, what client doesn't capture, but patient does is, is also the, the, the two-way relationship. It's not just that the patient is the patient, but that the patient and the physician or the care provider 
you know, we each have our own roles and, and we're supposed to work together. And, and I, I, I prefer patient for that reason, because I, I want to be their provider and their partner in their care, not just their, their service provider. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, subtle point. Very good but. discussion. Very good. You know, and this is probably not a question we're going to have a definitive answer for this evening, but it shows, to me, it demonstrates how much you guys care. Obviously, each and every one of you cares so very much about about those you're providing this 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 this, this beautiful opportunity for, um, and and it really speaks to the the kind of people that go into this field. And I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out urology and say the fantastic urologists you all are and the care you're providing. We're going to go to the next question here. We're going to direct this back to Dr. Zhao. Um, so we have, we have someone asking, how does one get training in, uh, in gender uh, affirmation surgery do, doing a urology tract uh, residency? How, how does one go about that? You know, you know, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, it's uh, certainly uh, in the past, it was very hard to, uh, specific, to be trained specifically. You know, I mean, I think um, uh, a base, the basic understandings of uh, anatomy and physiology that, that we deal with as urology, uh, urology residency is, is critical. And then after that, generally one does uh, fellowship training in uh, reconstruction, various forms. There are definitely programs now that um, have uh, specific training in gender affirming surgery. There are several fellowships uh, around the country, um, including one uh, at my institute at NYU. Uh, so, um, you know, I think uh, in 2019, it's easier uh, now than before. Um, in the past, many of us uh, have learned how to do this, you know, principally through uh, travel to, um, you know, uh, other centers of excellence, perhaps other countries. You know, what we will do is reviewing, um, you, know, uh, you know, just the kind of textbooks and things like that. But now they are formal training programs. Got it. Okay, Dr. Garcia, a question for you. Could you just give kind of a general overview of, of just the, what, what post-op care looks like? How many days are they typically in the hospital? How many drains do they have? Is it, it I mean, it, it, they're in the hospital for a few days, right? Yeah, so so it depends on, uh, you know, uh, what surgery we're talking about. Let's say vaginoplasty is probably the most common genital gender-affirming surgery. So if they have, um, if they have this surgery without a vaginal canal, um, then there, and, and again, I should also emphasize different people do things differently. And I'm not going to say the way I do things is, is the gold standard. It's the way I do things. But my, for, in my practice, I keep patients, uh, they go home on sometimes post-op day three, sometimes, uh, post-op day four after a shallow depth vaginoplasty. I send them home with their catheter because the urethral, uh, you know, uh, anastomosis and so forth is not, the introitus is not sufficiently well healed. And, um, and that's about it. Um, uh, they're on bed rest, you know, uh, for at least a couple of days after shallow depth. They don't have a canal, so it's a little less critical. But um, uh, that's their hospital stay. I think it's important. I don't. I have never sent a patient to the ICU in my years of practice, uh, male or you know, trans man or woman. Uh, so they they get ward level care. I think it's important to have a good 
a ward that's prepared to take care of our patients, but uh, they go to ward. Um, and then if they have a vaginal canal created, uh, there you have a canal you don't want to move a lot. Uh, I leave them, and I think all my other colleagues do, we leave them packed with something in the vagina, vaginal canal, and then uh, some degree, some modicum of bed rest. I keep my patients in bed after uh, vaginoplasty with a canal for four and a half to five days, and then I get them to ambulating. And on the fifth day or so, I remove the packings and the dressings. And then by the evening of the fifth day, if they're dilating and they've had a bowel movement and we've removed their catheter and they've voided, they can go home, you know, half go home post-op day five, half go home post-op day six. Uh, and they're in bed for most of that time. Everything really happens the day of discharge. Great. And then for phalloplasty, it's, you know, yep. about, about, about six to seven days. Similar, Very, uh, except I mean, we yeah. get people up the next day with vaginoplasty. We we have our packing is secured, so we try to get people moving and walking, uh, like after any surgery. And then same thing, taking out vaginal packing, casters, drains, on about day five. Yeah, great. This well, no, is, we got a couple like more questions. Just, Go ahead. Uh, just uh, I think we've we haven't really mentioned the. Uh, support system that patients have uh, once they go home. Right. I think one of the things that our social worker makes sure of is that they have a support system. They have a family member, friends, or someone who can keep an eye on them regularly in the post-op period. It's one of the things that who can help them to make sure that they're dilating appropriately, that just they have someone around who can help them with their care. Uh, it's really important in that first, you know, two-week period postoperatively to have someone available because if they don't, it, it tends to really affect their postoperative care. Uh, um, I would add to, to the, yeah, and I think Dr. Rayblatt pointed out that, yeah, people do things differently in terms of ambulation. I, I, you know, I, I think it's important to always ask, do we have DVT prophylaxis for patients? Uh, you know, I use sub-Q heparin and, uh, and I think many, and serial compression devices when they're in bed. But uh, I think these are all things we have to be thinking about, and we, we need, uh, you know, evidence-based uh, outcomes data to see what's, what's better. We want to shorten hospital stays wherever we can, but, you know, doing so safely and so forth. So sure. it remains to be all seen. Right. Very good. We got two questions we're going to try to get to with really brief answers if we can, and then we're going to, we're going to finish up. So this question um, will be back to Dr. Rayblatt. Uh, when you ask for pronouns, do you introduce yourself with a pronoun as well? Do you use pronouns to describe yourself when interacting with the patient? That's a good question. I wear a pin. I wear a WPATH pin that says a pronoun she, her. So I think that kind of opens the conversation. I also have sort of um, things in the office, both in the waiting room and the office, that makes it obvious that this is a sort of a gender-fluid and gender-friendly um, space. All our bathrooms are uh, a sort of singular bathroom for all genders. So I think that kind of introduces the uh, our clinic space. But I introduce myself as Dr. Paulina Rayblad and I have a and I have a pin um, on my coat. Got it. Okay, thank you. Next question. For those that may live in remote areas or 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 you know even on on the border of the US and Mexico, let's say, where there's not a lot of specialty care access, is there a reference you could point out for, for a provider, a primary provider to use when interacting with patients that have received gender um, transitioning surgery? And so uh, maybe Dr. Hunnick, was there anything you would point out? Is there a reference patients could, or primary care doctors could use? 
a reference? I, I don't understand the question. I'm sorry. Well, they're looking for a resource. I mean, you know, if you're a primary care doctor or a family medicine doctor and you're seeing patients that have perhaps had surgery within a short period of time and, and you don't have access to specialty care right nearby, where would they go to get information off? I mean, is there is there a, a, a journal or a, or, or a book or something they could access that would be helpful for them? Well, that's one of the things that we're working on at the AUA. We're working on um, educational materials to educate uh, local urologists as to how to manage standard post-operative gender-affirming surgery-related issues. I mean, the same thing is true as pr primary care. I, I would say that the best thing to do is just to call call the doctor because yeah. you know, most of us are, you know, would be more than willing to um, speak to someone who's willing to take care of one of our patients locally as opposed to having them travel far away. So I'd say most of us are approachable and easily will be answer, able to answer questions and, and talk to their local urologist or otherwise. Another, if the person is looking for more of a general uh, question or information, there, uh, WPATH is an organization. You can join their web list, and that's it. People use it as a bulletin board of asking general questions. There's also a Facebook group of physicians working in transgender communities, and you can uh, and people post a lot of questions there and get answers from experts. And also, people post sort of like, my patient is moving to X, Y, and Z. Do you know anyone? transgender friendly there and you get a ton of referrals that way. I would have that, that, that I think it's a responsibility of surgeons. If we take on a patient that we know lives in a remote area, I, I think it's our responsibility to make sure that patient always has at least one direct access to someone and that's us. So, All right. so and I think my, I'm sure my colleagues agree, you know, my, you know, we should be reachable. I, you know, not everyone, you know, there's pros and cons to giving out your phone number. And I, I drill it into my patients only use this for emergencies, but if you're in an ER day or night, call me and just, ha just tell the doctor, they can call me directly and we can sort it out quickly. Cause I think it's a, you know, that that's a good way of saving people from potentially disastrous situations. And, uh, and, you know, if we owe it to them. If we're going to operate on them, I think we, we kind of have to do that. In addition to all the good ideas that my colleagues just outlined. Great. This is our last question. And I apologize to the attendees. We're not going to get to all of them. Um, uh, this, this goes back to something Dr. Zhao was talking about, but I'll just open it up briefly to the panel. We'll try to answer quickly. What does it mean for a patient to be living full-time in the desired role for 12 months? Who judges this, especially if it's unsafe for that person to, quote, unquote, be out? Mm. Dr. Zhao, any, want, want to take a shot at that? Sure. You, you know, um, I, I think this is one of the criteria for uh, genital surgery. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, the really the, the person that uh, this is part of the, the mental health referral prior to, to surgery. And so when we say that, that the patient is, um, uh, has, uh, you know, lived in that gender role, what it means essentially is uh, they use the pronouns, the gender role that um, is desired. They uh, have adapted the name. Um, I think the overall goal of this is that it should be um, someone who, uh, um, you know, this is for genital surgery, right? You don't, need to come out, if you will, to, to, to undergo um, before um, to uh, like you don't need to have general surgery to come out as uh, as transgender. Uh, so, you know, our 
I think part of the rationale for this is to make it so that, you know, uh, general surgery isn't, a, you know, kind of a, um, a way of, of helping people, you know, blend into whatever, um, you know, confined space that would prevent them from coming out, if you will. Uh, it's, it's really just one, you know, uh, procedure that really gets the patient closer to, to their true identity. Um, and so uh, certainly it's not the surgeon that does uh, that makes these kind of judgments. Um, it's usually just part of the mental health referral. And from a practical standpoint, as someone who's been doing this for a few years, uh, that uh, you know, I've actually never encountered a patient who, um, you know, uh, where they had not, you know, um, had 12 months of living in their gender role prior to asking for this operation. I don't know if the other sure. panelists ever had that experience. I agree. I mean, I think I think these are guidelines. I think I think that these are guidelines, and you know, you have to be flexible. In our institution, we have a we have a group where we present our patients to several doctors, nurses, social work, et cetera. And if there are any red flags, the key thing is that we just want to prevent regret. You know, we don't want 1%. We don't want 0.1%. We want a 0% regret level. So I think that's how you have to look at this particular question. Very nice summary, summation of that. This has been an excellent discussion. I want to finish out with a couple of slides. So Twitter is um, a very popular way for content to be delivered to, to medical students and to the urological community. The AUA is on Twitter. We have some hashtags that are commonly used that are up on your screen. AUA, med student, urology, please feel free to get involved in this discussion. Tell us if you liked our discussion this evening. We'd love to interact with you. Um, there is the uh, national meeting that happens for the American Urological Association. It's going to happen this year in Chicago, May 3rd through the 6th. It is an excellent meeting with robust topics, including what we've just discussed now. Um, it's open to medical students to attend, would encourage medical students to, to attend. There's probably going to be at least one or two medical student-driven events that will be very uh, informative. There is also the membership being free for medical students. So, geez, it's free. Why not? I mean, there's the AUA is a fantastic organization. If you're, if you're considering urology, you want to join the AUA for a lot of different reasons that we're not going to spend time on now, but it gives you access to a lot of information and a lot of specialty programs. Um, there is a medical student education curriculum app that you can download from the App Store on your phones that gives you a wealth of information that the committees have put a lot of effort into designing specifically for medical students to get familiar with urology, including some really wonderful exam videos that go through a very comprehensive exam, both for female and male anatomy. Most importantly, I want to extend a huge thank you to Dr. Rayblatt, Dr. Zhao, Dr. Honig, Dr. Garcia, the AUA webinar team, Joey Donaldson, Mary Pham, our support staff, Dr. Hulbart, our, 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 our medical student education committee chair. Um, this panelists have been fantastic. Thank you so much for delivering on your time and your effort to make this educational for the medical students. Once again, I'm sorry we couldn't get all to, the, to all the questions. There will be a webinar version that is archived on the AUA website for you to go back to and watch. If you missed some of the information this evening, if you came in late, we would encourage you to do that. Give us a few days to get that up. Once again, a huge thank you to Dr. Rayblatt, Dr. Zhao, Dr. Honig, and Dr. Garcia for demonstrating how much you care about your patients and the wonderful expertise you have. So with that, I want to say a good night. Thank you for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to interacting with you in the future as well. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much.